0: Hey friends, a little bit of business before we get to today's show. New episodes will be posted every Tuesday morning, so make sure you subscribe on our website or on your favorite podcast provider so you don't have to go tracking episodes down each week. And can I make just a quick shameless plea? I'm sorry. If you like today's episode, would you consider rating the podcast or writing a review or even sharing it on social media? Thanks for thinking about it. I would love that. That would be so helpful. If you don't like the show, forget I ever mentioned it. Most of the episodes this semester will be interviews with people on topics directly connected to Christian education in one form or another. But this morning's is a little different. A couple times a semester, we'll have episodes called The Story of Blank, like today's The Story of Funny. These episodes aren't so much about Christian education as much as they're intending to model something I believe is absolutely essential to Christian education, and that's curiosity. The name of the show, Lighting a Fire, is taken from a William Butler Yeats quote, Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. I love this quote so much because it reminds me that the goal isn't just communicating information to my students, but it's inviting them to see the world through a lens of worshipful wonder. And a huge part of this process is kindling curiosity. Being curious simply means you care. It means taking notice, for example, that there's a giant sphere one million times bigger than planet Earth just floating in the sky. Oh, and by the way, it's on fire. (laughs) Curiosity means noticing things that perhaps you've taken for granted before. Being curious means you're leaning in, expecting to be surprised, because as Marilyn Robinson put it so simply, this is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it. See, when my daughter draws a picture of a horse and gives it to me as a gift, I stop what I'm doing and I study it. I look closely at it. I ask questions about it. So when God creates a universe and gives it to us as a gift, it's at least good mannered to do the same. Years ago, I realized uh, as important as curiosity is to me, it, it was never really prioritized. In fact, I caught myself encouraging students all the time to ask questions, to be curious, to to wonder, uh, but I realized, you know, I'm not actually modeling this for them. And and as we know, education, so much of it is caught, not just taught. This was modeled for me by by some of my best teachers growing up. They were people who were curious, who asked questions within their discipline and, and outside their discipline. It was like they were going on these little journeys and, and saying, hey, come on, let, let let's ask these questions and see where they lead. These shows will be kind of like that. We'll take a question that I've asked or one of you have asked and we'll examine the thing in question through multiple lenses. Okay, blah, 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 enough from me. I think we're gonna have a lot of fun. Sam, hit that uh, jazzy sponsor music. Last but not even close to least, today's episode is sponsored by CASE, the Center for the Advancement of Christian Education, specifically their Teaching for Transformation Professional Development Framework. Teaching for Transformation is a framework for the creation of learning experiences that invite teachers and students to see their part in God's story. Okay, no joke, I've heard so many friends who are teachers and administrators rave about Teaching for Transformation. Um, Just even two weeks ago, a friend called me so excited because of the training he'd recently received, and he was just going on and on about how cool this was and how we needed to check it out. If you want to learn more, go to teachingfortransformation.org, or you can find more information and in a link on the Lighting a Fire Facebook page. All right, friends, without further ado, here is today's episode. Why did the tiger cross the road? Why? Why did the tiger cross the road? Because he wanted to get some orange juice. He <laughs> wanted to get some orange juice? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a joke. Why does the dog the My three year old and five year old were telling jokes one evening. Sort of anyway. I realized pretty quickly that they didn't really know what a joke is or how a joke works. Cream. So that's not quite a joke actually. So I tried giving some examples of what at least I thought were pretty good jokes, until my five year old asked Dad, what makes that funny? and I realized all of a sudden I don't really know what does make something funny humor is such an important part of my world my friendships even just my culture in general but I've never really stopped to think how does this work exactly I'm Bryant Russ and I absolutely love to learn in fact since God is the creator of all things I believe learning can be a profound act of worship. So come along as we explore this strange and wonderful world God has made, discovering more about who we are and who God is in the process. E.B. White said that humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. Well folks, get ready to kill some frogs cause that's exactly what we're gonna do. Dude. Gross. What?
1: You can't say that.
0: So a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walked into a bar. No. Knock, knock, Sam.
2: Uh, Let's just move on.
0: So what makes something funny? Inside that single question, there are about a thousand more. Are there different kinds of funniness? What's the impact of humor on social relationships? What's happening in our brains when we laugh? Why do we laugh after identifying something as funny at all? I mean, that's kind of weird when you think about it. (laughs) Today, we're going to explore the story of funny through a couple different lenses in conversation with some awesome people I got to meet as I followed this question around. I started by doing a little research on the internet and the more I read about humor, the more I came across something called the Humor Research Labs a laboratory dedicated to examining this question, what makes something funny, through a purely scientific lens. So I sent an email to the director of the Humor Research Labs, Dr. Peter McGraw. Even though Dr. McGraw has a Ph.D. and all kinds of academic accolades, he signs his emails, Pete, which made me like him from the get-go. Pete was gracious enough to join me for a serious conversation about the subject of humor. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. As I was doing a little digging, some research about what makes something funny, I was amazed to find that there, there wasn't really just like an answer necessarily, that this is something people are still wondering
2: and wrestling with. Is that is that really the, the case? Yes, it is. It, and, and it is so for a fascinating reason, I think. So The the sort of scholarly study of humor goes back more than twenty five hundred years. So the the earliest evidence for this is that Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato puzzled over why we laugh. And and frankly, people a lot smarter than me, you know, Immanuel Kant, Thomas Hobbes, Sigmund Freud have puzzled over this also. But it's it's largely been done from a philosophical standpoint. And and frankly, we've only had the kind of techniques to be able to answer this question in the last sort of 50 plus years. And so while it's an old question, our ability to answer it has been kind of left to to sort of more modern or contemporary times. The problem is that because humor is this sort of non-serious thing, the sciences haven't Focused on it as much <laughs> as I believe that they should, because at first, at first blush, it seems sort of frivolous. Like science Ooh, yeah. should be solving real problems, serious problems. And I, of course, when I stumbled on the question of what makes things funny, I knew enough about emotions to know that the existing accounts, these philosophical accounts, were incomplete. But I had in my toolbox the ability to run experiments, and uh, the ability to run experiments let me do something that, I, that these people who are way, way smarter than me were unable to do. And that is, I think, get a really firm understanding of what makes things funny. So in that process, Pete, you started the Humor Labs. Is that right? So the official name is the Humor Research Lab, but we affectionately refer to it by its acronym, HURL. <laughs>
0: I love that. So Hurl, tell me about Hurl and what you guys do and what you've
2: found. Yes. Okay. So unfortunately for your listeners who are imagining what a humor research lab looks like, they sort of imagine this sort of room with shelves filled with whoopee cushions and, and uh, rubber chickens and clown noses and so on. It's hardly the case. So the journalists who call me are always disappointed by this. Really what the lab is, is a group of professors, postdocs, graduate students, and undergraduates, and then occasionally just someone else, you know what I mean? Like I've had actually people volunteer. I had a cartoonist who joined us for a while to to help out a little bit. And these are people who are just fascinated by this topic and want to contribute and, and help. And so a lot of what happens is it's, it's a bunch of people sitting around a room or now sitting on a Zoom call and talking very seriously about this subject that seems non-serious at first. <laughs>
0: I can just imagine these conversations.
2: <laughs> they have happen to be a lot more fun than the typical lab conversation that you have. So, you know, like we will have a serious discussion about why farts are funny. You know, I mean, so <laughs> because to a lot of people they are. And so why not figure that out? Now, the the answer to the question, what makes things funny is uh, I think is actually surprisingly simple. Uh, And so when when I stumbled on the question more than a dozen years ago, I was surprised that to answer that question, you needed three categories of theory. So one is this notion of superiority, that we laugh at the follies and the foibles of others. You know, someone slips on a banana peel and we point and laugh at them.
0: Quick pause. Just think about all those epic fail videos floating around on the internet.
2: And that is that comedy is kind of a game in which there are winners and losers and the the winners um laugh at the losers
0: i've got four daughters and that is a foolproof way to get them to laugh as if i hurt myself yes a bit a
2: good know, a good bit of uh, physical comedy or slapstick uh, or the pratfall as it's as yeah, it's called yep. indeed the other one is this idea of release or relief so freud gets a lot of credit for this idea essentially is that the humor, sort of, this escape valve for these sort of taboo parts of being human, and so it's sort of a safe way to um, to let these thing these kind of things out. And then the last one, and that's the sort of eight hundred pound gorilla of of theories, is this notion of incongruity: is that we that we're amused by some mismatch between what we expect and what we get in the world. Hmm. Um, oftentimes people talk about surprise, but, um, is, I think neither necessary nor sufficient. I almost
0: think of it as a surprise in a surprising way, not just a surprise. Cause that could be totally random and not funny, but a surprise in a way that surprises. So for example, what's Beethoven's favorite fruit? Banana, na. it's cause it's like the fruit and okay, I'm done back to Pete.
2: When I came to this. Very quickly, I realized, well, you shouldn't need three theories to explain one thing. You know it violates what we call parsimony. The idea is that the that all things equal, the simplest explanation is preferred to a more complex explanation. And we found this paper by a linguist named Thomas Veitch and and thought there's really the bones to to what became what we call the benign violation theory. Essentially, the idea is that that we laugh at, Things that are wrong, yet okay. Things that are threatening, yet safe. Things that don't Hmm. make sense, yet make sense. So it has this, what we call benign violation, element to it.
0: It might be helpful to define those two words. Benign basically means non-harmful. And violation, in this sense, seems to be a blanket category for just about anything negative. Something wrong, broken, tragic, something that doesn't add up or make sense. So it's something that's a violation, but it's non-harmful.
2: So, for example, the uh, if you want to take a superiority pratfall account, right, is that someone falls down, and obviously that's wrong, that's bad, that shouldn't happen, that's threatening, that's concerning. But if that person is okay, right, that helps make it acceptable, benign, right, and and we laugh as a recognition of that, the person perhaps laughs to say to the world, wow, that was bad, but not as bad as it could have been.
0: There's, there's a violation, but it's benign. So now you could perhaps have a violation that's not benign, but then that's not funny.
2: That's exactly right. So, so another reason, so for example, when dad slips on the banana peel, funny, when grandma slips on the banana peel, not funny, right? Because of the (laughs) risks are, are, go way, way up there. Similarly, the person falls and they get hurt. You know, even if dad gets hurt, it's hard to laugh about it in the moment. So one of the neat things about the benign violation theory is that it explains not only what makes things funny, but what makes things not funny and the two ways that things are not funny. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. We've, we've written about this in our, this is how boring our papers are. That this is how we put a little bit of, of comedy in our papers. So so imagine if you tell a baker he has nice buns, <laughs> you know, so that, that's I, I a benign violation, right? You know, so it's not okay to, to compliment someone about their backside, <laughs> right? But it is about, okay, you know, when that is uh, disguised as a reference to his bread products, you know? Right? <laughs> you say that to a banker that he has nice buns, right? And you don't get a laugh, you get a lawsuit, <laughs>
0: Oh, this is terrific. Okay, I'm just trying to create examples in my head and then break them apart through through this lens. But I'm not doing a very good job. Do you have, do you have a couple more? Keep going. Well,
2: the best way to do this is to is sort of to work in reverse. The reversal is comedy 101. What comedians do better than I can do and better than you can do and better than the average person can do is they're really good at being the masters of kind of putting these ideas together. Peter, as we're talking
0: about humor and and finding helpful ways to think about and even use humor, this connects with a book you've written recently. Can you tell us a little bit about Shtick to Business?
2: Yes. Okay. So I'm very excited about this book. My first Hmm. instinct was to write a book, create a bunch of lessons about how being funny will get you ahead in life. I quickly realized that that was not the kind of message that I wanted to put out in the world. (laughs) And the reason is not because being funny won't help you get ahead, but rather not everybody's good at it. And so if I tell everybody to go forth and be funny, so imagine I told a classroom of students, you should all be funnier. And imagine if I told an entire staff of teachers, you should all be funnier. The teachers who are sort of naturally funny and have that skill and they leaned into it, they probably would get those benefits. But for the folks who are no good at it, you know, who, who have, who don't have the skills, who have a lot to learn. (laughs) It's just going to make the world a really awkward place. As I like to say, we got to be worried about that guy, (laughs) but the insight for stick to business was, well, don't be funny, but learn to think funny. Hmm. That is that the world's funniest people are incredibly creative. You know, they, they have a job that's so hard, but they make it look easy. Hmm. What's that link between humor and creativity? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yep. My definition of creativity is an original, appropriate solution. That is, you are able to solve a problem, okay? But you do it in a way that other people aren't solving it. Hmm. And comedy requires such a level of creativity because it values innovation. It invo- it, it. values novelty. And so the idea is this is, is you tell a joke and then I tell a very similar joke. My joke just by virtue of being similar to yours will be less funny. Mm. Moreover, you tell a joke, you know, you tell your dad joke. And it's funny the first time, but you keep telling that dad joke and your, your children stop laughing. You've got to move on to new dad jokes. (laughs) And so comedy Comedy rewards novelty, it rewards creativity, so as a result, comedians have learned tactics. They have practices and perspectives that help them become more creative.
0: Wow, I love this. This is fascinating yeah, you're you're totally right. as you're explaining that, I'm thinking, yeah that
2: that is just a, such a perfect connection. right. so for example, this idea of 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 thinking in reverse is just a, a cheat to try to help create benign violations that most people wouldn't wouldn't be thinking of. Another one is this is the sort of mundane part of creativity because people tend to think about creative things like I was in the shower and I had this huge life-changing idea. But really, a lot of times what is truly creative is an outcome of just coming up with lots and lots and lots of ideas, many of which are really bad. So I call this third thoughts. And so the idea is that you know, we talk about having second thoughts. Well, really what we should be have, having is not second thoughts, but third thoughts or 10th thoughts or thousand thoughts. And that is that oftentimes the first solution that we come up with may be appropriate, but it's rarely original. It's exactly the same solution that other people are coming up with. So for example, the entire premise of the book mm-hmm. is built on it, not on a first premise, which is be funny and, be, and live a better life. I had to think, keep thinking about ideas, keep thinking about ideas until I had the idea. Don't be funny, think funny.
0: Oh, this is great, Peter. I'm I'm loving this. I'm just, I this is just so fascinating. I love it because humor is such an important part of our world and our culture and our relationships. But so rarely do we look at it through the lens that you, you're introducing
2: us to today. Perfect. I'm glad, I'm really happy to hear that. I think that there's a lesson in terms of thinking about. Every classroom has a class clown or, or a totally, two yep. or a three. Well, you know, these are, I think these are students who should be celebrated. And the reason is what they are doing is they're demonstrating that they don't fit a system that says, here are the rules, follow the rules, sit in your seat, pay attention. Well, you know what? Those people end up when they get out into the world, you know, they don't do well with factory work. They don't do well in an office. They don't do well with jobs in which you have to follow the rules. Okay, check these boxes, do these formulas, and spit this out. But you know what they do well in? They do well in jobs that require creativity, that require breaking rules. Mm -hmm. And in Stick to Business, I make the case for as – we start to incorporate more and more artificial intelligence robots into our into society and into the marketplace it's the rule following jobs that are going to get get taken up by robots because that's what they do very well robots follow rules but you know who's the last person to lose their job to artificial intelligence and that's a comedian Right? Robots can't do comedy. <laughs> well, they also don't do creativity very well. And so it's those class clowns who should be funneled into a path of creative pursuits. These are people who are likely to become artists right? and programmers and, and people who are rewarded for, for not following the rules, but for breaking the rules. They should become entrepreneurs. Oh. right? They're the Elon Musks of the world.
0: This is awesome. I'm just loving this. I think that's a big challenge for teachers and school systems to be thinking about. How how do we encourage that? And there's there's a reason, you know. I mean, a a controlled environment is really helpful for communicating information. But if the goal isn't just the transmission of information, we might have to rethink how we organize a classroom, how we organize a school to promote creativity, to promote some of this outlier type of thinking that you're talking about. Okay, so there's a ton to unpack there, incongruity, benign violation theory, the connection between humor and creativity. After the conversation with Pete, I wanted to find an example of someone out there who was doing this really well. Someone who, like Pete talked about, uses humor creatively to solve problems in unique original ways, which led me to the Harmon Brothers. You might not recognize the name of that company right away, but I bet you'd recognize their work. This is where your ice cream comes from. The creamy poop of a mystic unicorn. Yep, those guys. I joined Benton Crane, CEO of the agency behind some of the most viral ads in internet history, to discuss the process of funny and to hear about the evolution of one of their most hilarious marketing campaigns.
1: So we're the Harmon Brothers, but... We often get called the viral video guys or sometimes the poop video guys (laughs) because we are.
0: What a great way to be known.
1: (laughs) We're famous for having created some really viral campaigns. One was for Poopery, one was for Squatty Potty. And of course, both deal with, you know, poop in one shape or another. (laughs) And uh,
0: poop in one shape or another.
1: (laughs) What we're really, really good at is taking, you know, difficult or taboo subjects and finding ways to tell stories around those taboo subjects in ways that uh, make them very digestible and very fun and even, you know, very shareable for for our audiences. And that's kind of the superpower that we've developed.
0: Okay, so are you guys just like naturally funny? How, how do you anticipate what people are going to laugh at? and? And these aren't just like a little funny. These videos have been viewed 1.4 billion times. How how do you do that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so believe it or not, I'm one of the most boring people on earth. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am not very funny at all. So we actually hire straight up comedians to come in and help us with, with our scripts and our videos. A couple of our partners, Neil and Jeff Harmon, they founded... Dry Bar Comedy, which is a, it, it's a network of family-friendly stand-up comedians. And, and so we, we are kind of able to pull talent from that network of comedians and get them to come in and help us punch up our scripts and make them, make them really, really good. But even after we get their help, we found that we still have to do a lot of testing and experimentation to find out what works and what doesn't. A stand-up comedian, when they first write a joke, they usually have no idea how it's going to work out. And so they have to go, yeah, they've got to go test it out at open mic night and and see, okay, does it land? Does it not land? Do I need to tweak it? Do I need to adjust my timing? Do I need to scrap it? Do I need to punch it up? You know, these are all things that that these comedians are constantly workshopping. When you go hear a polished set from, you know, a world renowned comedian you don't realize it but there are years and years and years and just hundreds of hours of work and preparation and practice and testing that went into that set and and so we have to go through a similar process with our ads where you know the comedians write the jokes and we think oh man we might have something here but then we actually have to go out and test it on audiences and find out what works And so by the time you see our ads, you know, they're going viral on YouTube or Facebook or whatever it is, there have been months of work that have gone into it to get it to that point. And that behind the scenes work is what, you know, most people don't, they don't ever get to see that part of it.
0: Oh, that is so amazing. I mean, there's really a science to it. I'm just, I'm picturing someone pitching this idea. so. So there's a unicorn and he's pooping ice cream. (laughs) By the way, audience, if you don't know what I'm talking about, pause this episode and go look up Squatty Potty commercial on YouTube. I can imagine this is a process and it's a process that you guys do very
1: well. It's always an evolution. So, you know, that Squatty Potty unicorn that pooped ice cream, The you know, originally the idea stemmed from, you know, we're just sitting there going, what is like, the polar opposite of poop, you know poop is gross and stinky and nasty, and no one wants anything to do with it. What is the polar opposite of that? you know what is delicious, what is desirable, what is you know even tasty <laughs> dare I say and um, and so originally the idea was, well let's use ice cream as a metaphor for poop, but then we had to start asking ourselves, well, where can the poop come from <laughs> and and we uh,
0: I'm having so much fun right now but <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, what we quickly found is that if you have the poop come from anything that's rooted in reality, it immediately <laughs> is gross, you know, so it can't come from a real animal or a human or anything like that, that's just disgusting. <laughs> it has to be fantastical, it has to be a fairy tale, and so naturally, a unicorn was was the perfect fit.
0: Okay, pause. Remember benign violation. Poop is an obvious violation because, well, you know, it's poop. Their challenge as the advertising agency is introducing this Squatty Potty product in a way that isn't gross or offensive. So they render the violation benign by bringing in these fantastic elements. And the result is hilarious. It's simple science, really. Back to Benton.
1: But even then, you know, so we knew, Okay, we wanted to use ice cream. We knew we wanted it to come from a unicorn but our original ideas were like this full size unicorn, like think the size of a horse, you know, you got like this Clydesdale horse and we imagined it on the back of a food truck on the corner of New York city, <laughs> you know, the you're you're on the street corner with this big food truck. And then you have like this disturbingly huge horse on the back of the truck. And we're literally like piping out these ice cream cones and feeding them to people <laughs> on the, on the, on the streets of New York. That was like the original idea. And, and of course you hear that now, and you're like, Oh man, that's disturbing. That, that would have been terrible, but that's how ideas work. You know, the, they have to start and then they evolve and you build on them and you workshop the ideas.
0: Remember this is what Pete called third thoughts.
1: So in the case of, of squatty potty, um you know one of our one of our writers Dave Vance he is the one who brought the prince and the medieval castle and that world into it and that's that's kind of what like completed the picture and completed the puzzle it you know took us out of that New York City food truck kind of frame of mind and brought us into this fantastical fairy tale land with this prince and you combine all of those different elements, the ice cream, the unicorn, the prince, the, the fairy tale land, and it just worked. But it took a long time and a lot of workshopping to get there.
0: Benton, may I ask why you guys use humor? Like, why is that such a important tool?
1: Inherently, there is nothing more shareable than humor. You know, you could argue that there are other things that are really shareable. You know, you'll see things that are controversial get shared. You'll things that see things that are fear-based get shared. Um, you'll see things that are inspirational that, you know, that will get shared. But I don't think any of them ever reach the shareability of humor. While we don't use humor in every single ad that we do, we, we use humor in the majority of them because it is so inherently shareable and adds so much value to, to a viewer's day. You know, what's better than putting a smile on people's face?
0: Mr. Crane, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Bryant. I really appreciate it.
0: That Squatty Potty video has over 38 million views to date and has helped their client earn millions and millions of dollars. So yeah, I'd say it's working. For our last stop, I wanted to stick with that theme of humor in viral videos, but bring it a little closer to home for Christian school communities specifically. How can funny be used as a tool to bring people together in challenging times? I met with head of school Wendy Hoffman from a CSI school, Lansing Christian, in Lansing, Michigan. Back in March, Michigan's governor closed schools due to the spread of coronavirus. When they found out, LCS staff members decided to make a hilarious Frozen parody expressing their sadness at missing their students, and it went viral so wendy can you tell me a little bit about the idea because in march school all of a sudden we found out that school was going to be put on pause for at least a couple weeks and i can just imagine the response being or at least one avenue to communicate all very serious information to to families and to parents and to students but instead you guys made a parody of a frozen song can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that idea
3: well first of all I have to say the idea wasn't mine. The idea came from our uh, Midland High School principal Andrew Klein and I didn't know about the idea really until about 20 minutes before we started shooting the video. I was <laughs> I was kind of wrapping up my serious communication with our community and prepping for a board meeting and he asked me would you know would you be willing to maybe just be a part of this for a little bit and I I thought, I really don't have time for this. <laughs> and then I just thought, okay, okay, fine. And then he said, do you know the movie Frozen? And I said, a little, I haven't ever seen it. His second grade daughter was with him and I had her teach me the song.
0: Hey, let's play a little bit of the, the audio from the video. Students, please, I know you're out there. People are asking where you've been.
3: They say learn online, we're going to.
0: We're still here for you. Do you need your pen?
3: We all have our computers to learn online. That's what we're gonna do.
0: Do you want to come and learn now? I guess we'll see you in a few.
3: I guess we'll see you.
0: Wendy, can you tell me a little bit about the response from the community initially, but then this gained traction really
3: probably bigger than you even anticipated. Tell us a little bit about that. So the video was really designed. It was intended for our community. And so we really felt bad for our students and our families and our teachers were feeling bad. So we thought, oh, this will bring some joy um, and some connection to our community. Um, And it did. But what we didn't know um, was that it was going to be shared, you know, in the Greater Lansing community, and then it grew really nationally, and then eventually internationally, um, just gained all this traction. And I have to tell you, it was an amazing distraction with all Mm. this stuff. What I understand is that it had over 2.4 million views, possibly two and a half million, which I'm not a social media person. Everybody tells me that's really good.
0: (laughs) Yep, that's pretty Uh, amazing.
3: What we understood was that it really lifted people's spirits. It was fun to just read all the comments. Um, It did generate emotion in people. It made a lot of people cry, but I think you know, people were feeling some sadness. So to kind of experience that together with teachers and families all over the United States and even the world was really quite something.
0: And that's part of what makes it so interesting to me is it expressed teachers' sadness at missing their students, but it did it in a really funny way. That combination, I think, is is fascinating. What do you see as the value of humor in bringing a community together, or at least in making people feel like they're part of something special?
3: For people to see their teacher's real emotion, but also kind of get into it, right, for the sake of their students, I think that was really helpful for people and humor is something we we all need, right? And humor does something Hmm. to, I think, even your chemistry, right? And it can lift your mood and it creates dopamine and all those wonderful things. I think people need it and it was helpful for people.
0: I remember seeing so many people on social media saying,
3: this is the school I went to, or my kids go here.
0: It's incredible just to see that excitement that this is a place where I belong, or I've got connections here, all generated from this video.
3: We saw a lot of alumni kind of come out of the woodwork, people we haven't seen for a long time, former staff, somehow saying, this is my school, right? This is Mm -hmm. the school I belong to. And then to have the people who are in the school also get a sense for that, just really kind of helped us to all feel like we are a part of something um, together during these really challenging and um, difficult times. And I think it was fun too to share stories, you know, among our staff and leadership of experiences that we had with people interacting with it. Um, we had a, a small television debut. So that was really fun. Mm-hmm. You know, in the local news, I'll be somewhere and somebody will recognize me and say, were you in that video? Yes. Like, it's bizarre. When I get up to do something, it's like people expect us to sing. <laughs> it was really fun to get Andrew to sing. And I think the best part of that was he just put himself out there. You know singing in public I, I don't think it's something he's ever done so to do this for his school community and then to have it go national you know i think that was just it was really great and it communicated something to the students right and to the families that was really helpful and really powerful
0: well please tell andrew klein that we're all anticipating his debut album yeah. <laughs> Hey friends, I hope you've enjoyed exploring the story of funny as much as I have. I didn't get all my questions about humor answered. In fact, I probably have more than I did before, but that's what I love about curiosity. As one of my favorite professors used to say, asking a question is like opening a door to a little adventure. My prayer is that we increasingly become holy question askers, investigators, explorers, discoverers, and all-around wonderers. And that our wondering would result in wonder. Wonder at this incredible universe and with the God from whom all things came, for whom we live and in whom we have our being. Amen. Hey, now I want to hear from you. How do you incorporate humor into the classroom? What do you see as the benefits of laughing together? Does your school have any particularly funny traditions? Anything funny related, I want to hear about it head over to the Lighting of Fire Facebook page to share and to hear from other teachers. What you share might just end up in the next episode. See you there. And if you have any questions or ideas for the show, please email me at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire. All right, one more chance. Let's see what you learned. Why did the rhino cross the road? Why did the rhino cross the road? Because he wanted to get some drinks for his friends. He wanted to get some drinks for his friends. That was so nice. (laughs) Still not really a joke, though.